Welcome to Spirits Podcast. This is a sometimes boozy, sometimes not dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this episode 319, all about legendary popes with the one, the only, Daniel Lavery. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. I think this is the first episode where I've asked the guest, like, hey, what do you feel like? Any topics? You said in a list of things that all look fascinating, legendary popes. And I said, no further questions. <laughs> so I, I I have nothing, I have no knowledge what to expect. And I'm sure it's going to be delightful. I promise you that it will be. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Now, you are somebody whose work I've been reading on the internet for a long time, which I may describe as a weird, uh, humorous, wonderful, archaic, interested in mythology, folklore, and tradition. How do you describe what you do and what you're interested in professionally to people who don't know your work? That sounds about right. I would say like a, a professional amateur of general interest, which also Good. describes a lot of the internet of the last decade or so. But I used to run a sort of general interest site called The Toast with my friend and business partner, Nicole Cliff, and then went on to write an advice column for a little while at Slate called Dear Prudence. And now I, I run a newsletter called The Chatner, formerly The Shatner Chatner, but William Shatner is very litigious. Mm. Some of my areas of sort of like perpetual interest have to do with like medieval Christian legends and folklore, um, among others. Um, but so this is definitely a, a sort of sweet spot of mine. I think you gave Shatner new relevance among, you know, young and uh, middle-aged queer people, but that's just me. <laughs> I think he was doing fine for himself. Like, I don't think he was in any danger of totally falling off the map. But I also don't think that he was, yeah, uh, in any danger from my goofy newsletter. But, you know, it's just one of the many subjects that William Shatner and I disagree upon. <laughs> that's totally fair. And before we get into the meat of the issue, and I know Julia has a lot of questions for you as well. What are some of the stories you were fascinated by as a kid? Were there any like ghost stories or urban legends or mythos that you were obsessed with um, that you would like to talk about now? Oh, my gosh. Well, certainly I can think of a number of like, you know, suburban Illinois in the 80s and 90s was not as much of a hotbed of like urban legends as fo and folklore as I would have liked. I've talked about this elsewhere, but I think one of the early indicators of like potential or future homosexuality in a certain type of suburban child is like nonspecific delusions of grandeur and like mm -hmm. a deep desire for like, why aren't there more legends and, and, and myths surrounding me and the people I know? <laughs> um, don't you know who I'm supposed to be? <laughs> Yeah, I preserved my own papers as a child as if I was one day going to be like a president or a pope. I don't know. Yeah, my future biographers will need this. Yes. And I grew up in a fairly religious family, but in an evangelical Midwestern tradition, which is really, uh, while it has lots of uh, kind of cultural effects all its own, it comes from a long line of trying to like divest Western Christianity from its own uh, like history and tradition, like always trying to like, oh, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. That's too much. So, you know, in some ways getting rid of all the fun stuff. So I was aware of, you know, some like Protestant history as far back as maybe like the Pilgrim's Progress, but anything, you know, beyond that was just like wildly exotic. And so certainly the idea of Catholicism was just like, wow, you know, you're allowed to get your ears <laughs> pierced when you're a baby. They got all kinds of gold. Um, what a remarkable, uh, you know, fascinating people. 
Also, the 80s and 90s in like the Midwest, I imagine that was probably a hotbed for Satanist rumors and urban legends and stuff like that. Was that something that reached your town? Not at least by my time. I think Mm -hmm. part of this was it was also a slightly like newly socially mobile or at least socially ambitious type of denomination. So I mm-hmm. think the the satanic panic of a few years earlier would have been seen as a little like day class A. Not even ah. like mistaken, just like, oh, that's kind of poor. And we want to <laughs> shop at J. Crew someday. <laughs> so, you know, like you would occasionally hear about, you know, a neighbor at the end of the cul-de-sac who gave out chick tracts on Halloween instead of candy. And that would be very like, oh, we don't do that. That's embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And of course, I, I'm sure actually chick tracts have their own papal legends because Jack Chick uh, was part of that uh, American Protestant tradition of, uh, you know, virulently anti-Catholic leanings. So I'm sure, although I have not read any of them, uh, that he he would have produced a number of pamphlets of really wild, wacky ideas about uh, what the papacy meant. I had never heard of chick tracts. I just Googled it. This is a wild tradition. Growing up suburbanly Catholic, uh, this this is this was not how we rolled. I can imagine not. Have you ever <laughs> seen like on Twitter a little drawing of like it's usually replaced by someone else saying something kind of silly, but like Jesus saying something and then it's like no one believed him and it's like a mimetic yes. thing. That's a, that's from a chick tract. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. I, I mean, the visual language of it is really like, I get why this was a real thing, but that's that's amazing. And I think a perfect segue into our, our topic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, away from, uh, uh, you know, American Protestant anti-Catholic sentiment and into simply like interesting papal legends is, I think, a good place for us to move. Please. But, you know, it, it is one of the oldest institutions in the world. They're, you know, with a few um, iffy months here or there and a couple of, you know, disputed folks on either side of the, the, the formal list. Um, you know, this is a an institution that stretches back over 2,000 years um, and, and through, you know, numerous uh, changes in, in global history. So it, it is not surprising that there would be a number of um, kind of myths that would spring up around something uh, so old. The two biggest ones, um, there's 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 Pope Donus II, who is a clerical error, <laughs> who is accidentally inserted after one of the Benedicts. Uh, but that's it. That's kind of all there is. Like it was a clerical error. Damn. Um, it was pretty swiftly corrected. There were not like decades in which everyone thought Pope Donus II was this incredibly uh, important figure. But so the, the two sort of biggest fictional or mythological or legendary popes are Pope Joan, which if you've heard about a fake pope, that's probably the one that you've heard of. There was actually a movie. Right about this in 2009, I think from a German studio. And I haven't seen it, so I can't vouch to its either accuracy or entertainment value. But it's, you know, it's, it's stuck around. And the other is of the the Jewish Pope Andreas. Um, so those are the sort of two big ones. Have you heard of either of them? Or are you familiar at all? I've heard of Pope Joan in passing. I'm not super familiar with Pope Andreas. Same. Yeah. So, you know, we can certainly, maybe it makes a little more sense to start with Andreas, just because uh, it's it's shorter, mm-hmm, sure, uh, and, and won't take as much time. But I do think it's interesting, you know. Before we jump into that, just like the the papacy is something that we do think of as you know incredibly old, incredibly static, um, and yet it wasn't until you know after the first thousand years that it was really uh, that the Western Catholic Church started pushing for the celibacy of the priesthood. And, you know, it wasn't until uh, a few hundred years after the, you know, that there there would be, you know, conflicts about whether or not priests would get to have beards. (laughs) And so 
there's a lot of interesting information from the sort of first millennium of the papacy of popes with wives, pope with popes with children, popes who fathered other popes, popes who who were you know uncles to anti popes, and so there's there's a lot more sort of. Uh, fuzziness, I think, in that first millennium. And, and that's, I think, a, a big part of where some of these stories come from. And I, I think it's pretty straightforward to say they, they speak to certain anxieties, both about like Jews, women, homosexuals. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The big the big ones, right? The big three. Exactly. <laughs> the big three. So the, the Jewish Pope Andreas, which, you know, uh, came from old Spanish legends, which again, that that makes sense, like the, the history of the, the Reconquista and the Inquisition, like that's where a lot of the most sort of anxiety around the status of mm-hmm. has the you know Jewish people that we have forced to convert to the Catholic Church at the end of a sword actually done so, or have we now invoked Jewishness within ourselves in a way that we have to become really uncomfortable and violent mm. about within our own communities? But so it, it, it's 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 essentially like a, a retelling of the story of Esther. The idea is that Andreas becomes the Pope during which time there's an, uh, one of the calumnies against the Jews, which is like those false accusations of sometimes poisoning, sometimes murdering Christian children that was often used to kick off anti-Jewish violence throughout Western mm-hmm. Europe. And then at the critical moment of sort of like, we're we're going to, the community is going to go and commit genocide. The Pope shows up and he delivers a speech, sometimes in, in favor of the Jewish people, sometimes simply against persecution, sometimes uh, kind of invoking the history of like Christian pacifism. And then there's some sort of moment where he he either like offers a prayer or or has a sort of artifact with him a, as a token of his own Jewish heritage, which he sometimes gives to um, the Jewish people in secret, like in a secret meeting in his room. But something that kind of denotes I'm I'm here and I'm looking out for you and I know who mm-hmm. you are. And sometimes this is associated with one of the anti-popes, Anacletus II, sometimes with Pope Alexander III, who were both sort of known for being well disposed towards um, European Jewish populations, which often in context means simply uh, in order of magnitude less violent. Mm-hmm. But the sort of interesting thing there is that there's also some roots to actual stories throughout the the Middle Ages and, and up into the Enlightenment of Jewish children who were kidnapped and raised by Christian families. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a, a, a real case um, that's fairly notorious in, in Italy from the 19th century of, of Edgardo Mortara, who was a Jewish child who was secretly baptized by a Christian servant in his parents' household. And, and on the strength of that, baptizing this infant in the middle of the night, she claimed that she had the right to take him and raise him. And um, eventually, legally, the courts sided with her and he became a, a priest within the Catholic Church. So this is obviously, you know, centuries after um, the first story of, of Andreas was popularized, but it's sort of fascinating that actually had so many real world moments of of replication, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's wild. Not surprising because it's Italy and Catholicism. And obviously the during that time period, any like Catholic person would probably trump any Jewish person because that's just how Europe was and sometimes is still. But I think that's really interesting that you have this story and then you do see these kind of real world consequences or real world reflections that find their basis in a mythos that was created. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, in 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 both the stories of Joan and Andreas, you know, it's it's, it's incredibly and immediately apparent, sort of like what's at stake, um, mm-hmm. or or like why these communities would be telling these stories to themselves. And so, Pope Joan was both incredibly popular prior to the Protestant Reformation and then during the Protestant Reformations for sort of obvious reasons. But that mm-hmm. so it was popular both among first Catholic and then later Catholic and Protestant audiences. Whereas the legend of of Pope Andreas um, w- was more squarely within Jewish. Tradition, so it was mm-hmm. not, at least it's not as far as I'm aware, especially popular among Catholics um, or Christians of any kind. It feels like a sort of fear of Christians that you know someone may have converted, someone may have claimed to converted, somebody may you know disclaim um, and kind of disavow their heritage. But I think particularly then, like fear of of Jewishness, of Jewish ethnicity, of Jewish blood is absolutely a thing that feels like, well, of course, in this story, the person born Jewish would have some, you know, bit of Jewishness inherent to them that is not purgeable um, and maybe makes them, you know, an exception or an asterisk or or not fully Catholic and certainly not fully fit to rule Catholics. And and, and like the, the Esther story, uh, there's very much a sense of somebody being forced to hide in plain sight and an attempt to sort of wring some goodness out of um, like traumatic dispossession. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, often the story of Pope Andreas is one where he is stolen from his family, Mm -hmm. often while his parents are asleep and held prisoner in a monastery. And Mm -hmm. in fact, one of the one of the versions of this story, he calls his father to see him after having uh, issued an edict of persecution um, against the Jews of the community. Um, In in this instance, Magonza, which would have been um, a region in, in Germany. And when his father comes to see him, they play chess. Uh, and he plays a chess move that his father had only taught him. And so mm. by this token, his father knows that this is his son, that the edict is, in fact, not actually going to result in a campaign of terror, that this was just his attempt um, to communicate with him. So again, you see this real like retelling of things that would actually happen, um, but in a way that uh, contains the seed of or the possibility of hope, lessened violence in the future, caretaking, um, the, the promise that... Um, it will not always be uh, violence, terror being driven out. Totally. And it's codified in Judaism that sometimes you have to convert and say it with your mouth, even though you don't mean it in your heart. And that's not a sin. It is understood. And what actually, like one of the very few things that you kind of can't come back from is worshiping a false idol in your heart and not just with your actions. Because sometimes lots of us throughout time have really had to do that. And like, we get it, um, which is the thing I've always found um, really like poignant and fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's sort of the beginning and the end of the story. It doesn't have the same kind of legs that the story of of Pope Joan has had or the same sort of like uh, attempts to identify various like actual pieces of papal furniture. Right. Which Pope Joan does have. Um, But so I think there are more more similarities than perhaps you would, you know, first immediately think of uh, between the two. But so, again, you mentioned briefly that you thought you had heard of Pope Joan. Can you tell me just like anything you have heard about the story or whether or not you learned about it as like a fiction or a a potentially true story or or what? I feel like I just heard like Lady Pope and that's all I remember. You know what I mean? I think I might have heard and like there is there is a bit of Catholic lore that may or may not have come from Dan Brown novels or history (laughs) like that. That is a site of transference in my brain that I I know is true. But I've heard of a Pope potentially giving birth um, that may be related to Pope Joan. Yeah. And it's not a corner of AO3 that you were reading that on. 
That's right, Julia. That's that's different. That's different. Right. So that's a, a a big part of the story, and I don't think we have to worry too much about spoiler alerts. Um, <laughs> ideally, check the tags, everyone. But, but yeah, so so there's a tension in the Pope Joan story. Both Pope Joan and Pope Andreas, um, in, in both legends, there's there's a specific bit about how good they were at being Pope, mm-hmm. and and so again, there's that sort of sense of like, what if an outsider is as good at being Pope as popes are supposed to be? Yeah. So so both both Andreas and Joan are incredibly competent. And there's there's sort of two different uh, versions of how Joan gets there. The legend of Pope Joan, we first see written records of it in about the mid-13th century. But she is supposed to have reigned during the, the mid-9th century. A comfortable 300 years in the past when people were dumber than we are now in the <laughs> cosmopolitan 1200s. They just didn't know as much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so the sort of period of the papacy that it's hearkening back to um, is a really complicated and interesting one. And, and it has to do with, I think, an ongoing reevaluation of that period. I don't know if you're familiar with the term the, the pornocracy. No. No. So so the word pope, uh, you know, comes from the Greek papas, meaning father. It, it refers to the in Western Christianity, the Bishop of Rome, who is also the head of the global Catholic Church and the head of Vatican City and the apostolic successor to St. Peter. You know, in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Um, with them, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. And that's generally understood as the beginning of apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. That's a little like it doesn't take right away. It's also used for the Bishop of Alexandria, for example, in like Coptic and Greek Orthodox churches. Mm -hmm. But like around by the fifth or sixth century, Pope is being used in the Western church exclusively for the Bishop of Rome, with a few notable exceptions, like the Archbishop of Milan was formally rebuked in 998 for calling himself the Pope. (laughs) Incredible. It's like, I know I'm the Pope. I need to make sure everyone else knows that I'm the Pope. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, you know, there's no real temporal power in in the papacy until after the, the conversion of Constantine, because the first few hundred years of the church um, under Roman authority was largely one of, you know, trying to keep things under wraps as much as possible. But um, once Constantine does convert, he starts this tradition of um, donations. So lots of early Christians within some form of power would would donate usually upon their death, like, oh, Catholic Church, you can have my villa when I die, or here is some money when I die. Please pray for me. And and up until this point, the church is just like a private landowner. So they're trying desperately to figure out how do we keep all of these properties connected? How do we pass things on? How do we, do we still need to fly under the radar? And meanwhile, uh, you know, the the Goths are invading and and taking over (laughs) different parts of the empire. So there's like the Ostrogothic papacy, there's the Byzantine papacy, which is also sort of like tense because of the exarchate of Ravenna, which was sort of like a second not quite papacy but like the byzantines were trying to run rome from byzantium and that wasn't going great um i feel like i'm in college again this is great (laughs) i know i i feel really smart because i know who wins and so like i just know from the words i know and the words i don't know like i bet those guys lose and it feels like i'm watching a children's mystery and like feeling really smart that i know who the villain is (laughs) yeah but i mean it is incredibly like the the moving chairs and the moving positions of seats of power within you know uh, late antiquity early medieval Italy is really stunning. I mean, there's just you know waves and arrows, waves and arrows coming and flowing all over the 
the map. So yeah, uh, totally. around the mid 8th century, you start to get the consolidation of the papal states. And so you have, you know, real earthly political power, actual lands under uh, the rule of the papacy. And so the the time that I'm referring to, sometimes called the, the saculum obscurum or the pornocracy or the rule of harlots. That took place around, you know, 9th, 10th century. There were particular aristocratic families, particularly the Theophylacti. Also, just to, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Midwest in the 80s and 90s. My Latin is purely <laughs> theoretical. Uh, my Italian is no better. So I apologize, uh, you know, if, if I've been mangling any words here, and I'm sure I will you're, continue. You're saying that with confidence, which I think is 85% of the battle. But mm-hmm. I mean, isn't most Latin theoretical? Like we, we kind of don't know how it's pronounced. Is that true? Or is that like a truism? I think there's, yeah, there's no sense of like how people who spoke it every day um, would have sounded like. But I mean, I'm sure if you got an actual, you know, like Latin <laughs> expert in here, they'd, they'd at least be able to say with some confidence uh, words that I'm guessing on. <laughs> now, uh, was the pornocracy related to uh, sex? Or is that one of those words that I laugh at, but really means something very banal in Latin? Uh, no, it absolutely was. You're you're absolutely right. And so this is Nailed the general it. area of time during which 13th century writers began to claim that uh, Pope Joan would have ruled. So it, it's, I think, pretty... Uh, relevant that this is the era that is retroactively known as a particularly like sexually raucous time, sexually dangerous time, especially because like the celibacy of the clergy is not a totally settled thing yet. You know, we've had as early as like 304 edicts about clerical celibacy issued from the highest possible authority, but that wasn't taking all over by by any stretch of the imagination. I think the last married pope would have been Adrian II, which would have been Mm -hmm. around 867, 872. So, I mean, we're right in Pope Joan's time. Um, And his his wife and and children were killed. Um, And uh, the pope who replaced him was himself strangled in jail. So it was an incredibly uh, violent, wild, it was like the Wild West era of the papacy, I think is Mm -hmm. probably the best way of putting it. Just like you run into town, you get your guns, you kick down the door of the saloon, you say, who's the pope? And some guy raises his hand and you try to kill him. And then you say, I'm the Pope. Anyone have a problem with that? Mm-hmm. Imagine if the more modern day ones were so exciting. <laughs> the real transfer of power. I was going to say, I find the white smoke theatrical and campy. Like, I, I do love that. But it's not gunshots in an Old West saloon. Still get no, white it's... smoke, but you'd have like somebody like blowing it out from the gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also just want to slip in real quick. Rule of the Harlots was my favorite band in high school. So I, I think rightly so. yeah. As they should be. Yeah. So, you know, as I think I had mentioned, they weren't calling it that at the time. Like nobody was writing down in like the ninth or the 10th century, like, uh, you know, dear Hans, I'm writing to you during the rule of harlots. Um, (laughs) This is this is a term that originated in the 16th century. So a little later than the origins of the Pope Joan uh, story. But, you know, certainly like late medieval, early Renaissance, like retrospectives of the early medieval period. Mm -hmm. And so that was a cardinal named Caesar Baronius, um, who had a contemporary reference, Bishop Liutprand of Cremona which was a place in Northern Italy. So those were his sources. But again, he was writing with his own additional spin. The real sort of consensus was that there were 
too many women involved in the papacy and that this was in part because the the celibacy of the clergy was not yet settled. You may be familiar with Edward Gibbon. He wrote Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He was one of the big mm-hmm. kind of 19th century guys. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote a little bit about particularly two women from the rule of harlots who were particularly um, remembered in sort of infamacy. Uh, one of them was Marozia uh, and one of them was Theodora. And they were both sisters. And Marozia had the kind of unusual political title of Senatrix, which sounds amazing, I think. It does sound really cool. Up there with like aviatrix in just terms of like you occasionally get weird words for uh, a particular job when a woman does it that is on the one hand, you know, a little silly and um, unnecessary. And on the other hand, just sounds so much cooler than senator or aviator that you wish we kept them. Oh, I'm going uh, podcastrix from now on. That's just my new title. Yeah. Yeah. So she was she was given the title of Senatrix of Rome by John X. Um, she was the alleged mistress of Pope Sergius II, probably a few others, the alleged mother of a couple of popes. She really was involved, um, mm-hmm. is, is the nicest way to say it. Other people obviously said it in very mean ways. Um, and so Edward Gibbon, kind of summarizing a lot of those uh, later medieval perspectives, um, he wrote, uh, the influence of two sister prostitutes, Morozia and Theodora, was founded on their wealth and beauty, their political and amorous intrigues. The most strenuous of their lovers were rewarded with the Roman mitre, meaning the, the, the papacy. And their reign may have suggested to the darker ages the fable of a female pope. The bastard son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of Morozia, a rare genealogy, were all seated in the chair of St. Peter, and it was at the age of 19 years that the second of these became the head of the Latin church. Wow. Right, because we definitely want a 19-year-old pope. That makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) I imagine all his decisions are probably great and just and very pious. I imagine that's going to be the next season of The Young Pope, like the young popes just keep getting younger and younger. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like a 17-year-old being like, where are the ladies at? (laughs) I think we're now at the crossover point of where young Sheldon and young Pope, like if we go Pope goes backwards in age and Sheldon goes forwards in age. I think they're about 17, Julia. I think you've you've created that. I feel like though young Sheldon's whole thing would be like checkmate Christians. uh, (laughs) Yes. You know, Reddit era 2007 atheism. Which would, oh, yeah. frankly, only improve young Pope Sheldon the show. Fair, fair. Just horrible How Family about- Guy style pronouncements. <laughs> How about we just linger on young Pope Sheldon for a second and quickly grab a refill? Let's do it. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Refill, where, ooh, is that new patron Sarah? Let me top off your drink, alcoholic or not, and welcome you to the party, where you, along with the hundreds of people who support us on Patreon, make it possible for this to be our jobs, for us to bring you new episodes every dang week. Thank you to our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia Ann, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Jessica Stewart, Measlekins, Lily, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmo. Sarah, Scott, and Zazie, and our legend-level patrons who just got, by the way, a few weeks ago, their custom tarot readings. That's a tarot vibe check from Julia, photo, audio, a text version of a spread just for you for your next season. If you want that, you gotta join at patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, but we hope you enjoyed Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi-Yokai, Clara, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and BM Yep Scotty. 
As a reminder, our Patreon is now monthly. That means that when you sign up, your tier is exactly what you're going to pay each month, simpler for you, and gives us more tools to be able to bring you things like those amazing tarot readings and all the other goodness, uh, hundreds of <laughs> Patreon posts from the past seven years and dozens and dozens of bonus, bonus people urban legends episodes. Any tier is available to you to get bonus urban legend episodes. Enjoy it. We promise. Patreon.com slash spirits podcast. Now, I was on vacation uh, last week visiting friends in Portland and Seattle and seeing my cousins and hugging babies. It was so much fun. So first, thank you to Julia for doing extra work to give me some time off. But secondly, I had a very uh, rainy and moody flight over to Portland and Seattle. And I read Small Game by Blair Braverman, who you may know well as a person on Twitter posting incredible pictures of sled dogs. And this book was so stunning. It's about people who go on a sort of alone style reality competition show, a survivalist show, and uh, weird stuff happens. Uh, it is not exactly a horror novel. I would say it's very much about suspense, but it was all about kind of what it means to go on a show like that, what it means to be alone, to be in the woods, to, you know, come through for people. And as a person who's really into competition TV shows, it was a very cool kind of side of that industry and take on, you know, a book about a TV show that I hadn't ever seen before. And Blair is a fantastic and super lyrical writer. So check out her newest book, Small Game, at spiritspodcast.com slash books, where you can buy it online. Uh, gives us a little bit of a commission when you use that link, but also more importantly, supports indie bookstores here in the U.S. And hey, we have so much going on this month at Multitude. There is so much happening that we are so excited about. But, you know, our old favorites, we never leave them by the wayside. And this week, I want to remind you that we have a weekly friendly debate podcast called Head Heart Gut that we publish. That's right every dang week. We have some extremely cool stuff planned for this year. Right now, we're debating what the best symphonic instrument is. Uh, it's extremely exciting and nerdy. And I just wanted to highlight for a sec that at the $10 tier of the multi-crew, that's the membership program that supports Multitude, lets us do new things and pay our lovely community manager and make new projects, including free resources for all of you out there. At $10, you not just get head haircut, you also get access to a bonus behind-the-scenes monthly newsletter, our multi-crew only Instagram account where we post lots of sneak peeks before everybody else, even the rest of the multi-crew gets to see. And first dibs, of course, on any updates coming down the multitude pike. So that's the $10 tier of the multi-crew gets you access to head, heart, gut, and so much else, including a special Discord hang, special channel in the Discord. So much goodness at multicrew.club. Sign up at multicrew.club for the multi-crew and access head, heart, gut, along with all those other bennies. We are sponsored this week by Third Love. I was looking recently at a very cute shirt um, that I wanted to think about buying. And then I thought, Ugh, I really don't have a bra that would like make this shirt look you know, that would work with this shirt. And then I realized to myself, wait, we have a Third Love sponsorship. What if I went to Third Love and got a bra that is one of those like configurable guys that you can like change the straps on the back to match the strap of your shirt? Hey, I don't have one like that. And the only place that I would ever consider buying a bra online is 
Third Love because most bras are terrible and Third Love knows that it's not you or your body being bad or weird. It's that the bra is badly made. And when I put on any piece of clothing that makes me feel bad, it makes me feel like I did something wrong and not that the thing should be cut differently or needs to be modified to be better for me. And that is why I love Third Love. You get to upgrade your bra drawer with Third Love's best sellers. And I find the fit quiz that they have online so easy to take, but I've also followed up with their customer service fit experts to make sure that I'm like, hey, you know, normally bras fit me in this way, or I have a gap or it pinches here, or this part's uncomfortable. And they help guide you as to what you actually need. It is absolutely fabulous. I promise you, you got to check it out. You got to ditch bad bras, get a better one that makes you look and feel great. When you upgrade your bra and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash spirits. That's right. You get 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com slash spirits. We are also sponsored this week by Tab for a Cause, which is a free and incredibly easy way to transform your tabs into a force for good. Tab for a Cause has raised over $1.5 million for charity to date, and they do that by whenever you open up a new tab and you have the Tab for a Cause extension, available in Safari, Firefox, and Chrome, by the way, you see a beautiful photo, and then you see a couple of small ads, and that ad money goes to charity. It is absolutely fabulous. And by joining Team Spirits, you will help other conspirators go ahead and raise money for charity as you are simply just browsing the web. Go to tabforacause.org slash spirits. That's tabforacause.org slash spirits and join Team Spirits. Get those lovely photos, get those little ads, raise money for charity. We are finally sponsored this week by BetterHelp. And I know for certain, just like when you wake up after, you know, a poor night of sleep or if I, you know, I'm doing something and I am not, you know, eating food that makes me feel good and fueled, I know I'm just not at my best. And nothing for me is more true than my state of mind and my mental health. For when I'm not at my best, I can't show up for others. I can't do the things I want to do. I can't enjoy the life that I'm living. And whenever I feel that way, I am really grateful that I have a great therapist at my back to help me work through the stuff that I feel is holding me back that I'm worried about just to talk to someone else where even if we don't come up with a plan right away, just getting it off my shoulders, off my chest is such a wonderful thing. If you are thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option for you to consider. It is convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. And especially if you live somewhere where there aren't a ton of therapists, or maybe there are, but they're not taking new patients, or they're way too expensive, or they don't take your insurance, there are so many obstacles in this country for getting access to mental health care. And I really appreciate that BetterHelp makes it easy, whether it's, you know, you're just getting started, or you need something in between seeing other therapists, or you find it really convenient to have therapy online. BetterHelp is a great option to try. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now back to the show. We're back. I think I've had enough uh, very, very pungent ginger tea to purge the image of young Pope Sheldon uh, from my brain, though now I've, you know, resummoned it for all of us. So here we are. Um, but we're excited to learn more about Pup Joan. Yeah. So I'm f- finally getting us there, right? Like it's been a lot of throat clearing. So you may have recognized in Edward Gibbon's quote earlier, he refers to it as the fable of a female Pope. So certainly yes. Gibbon understood it to be legendary. And he himself has a, an asterisk during this section and talks about how until the Reformation, this tale, meaning the tale of Pope Joan, was repeated and believed. And Joan's statue long occupied her place among the popes in the Cathedral of Siena, but she has been annihilated by two learned Protestants, Blondel and Bale. 
Uh, and that second name refers to Pierre Bayle, who was a, a skeptical French Huguenot philosopher of the 17th century. So we have at, at least as far back as you know the 1600s, a tradition of skepticism uh, about the the Pope Joan story, um, mm -hmm. possibly earlier. So maybe maybe it's fair to say that almost as quickly as the legend sprang up, it was contentious, not believed by everyone. And so it was sort of understood as some people believed it uncritically, some people wanted to believe it or, or had political reasons for wanting to believe it. Others didn't really believe it had actually happened, but thought it was kind of a fun, kicky story. And that explained uh, a couple of uh, weird little quirks about uh, Vatican City or, or, or various elements of papal ritual, which is not unlike... Lots of like stories and myths that we have now where like some people might believe it literally, many more people believe it in a sort of like fun tongue in cheek way. And a lot of other people are are sort of adamant that this isn't true and therefore it's not useful. Yeah, I was just about to say the way you described it, the fact that the story explained quirks about Vatican City and the papacy as a whole. I'm like, of course, you know, you would want to tell a story that kind of explains away things that are otherwise unexplainable or just don't have as fun of a reason. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so some of this certainly depends on like, do you find it fun? <laughs> and that's pretty, pretty critical. So there's- I there's, do find Pope Joan fun. I do. The basic story. Oh, this is, this is going to be bad. Uh, my French is worse than my Italian and my Latin. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Purely speculative. So Jean de May, M-A-I-L-L-Y. Me? Yeah. He's a Dominican cleric. We're about to have a lot of Dominican clerics kind of coming our mm -hmm. way. Incredible. Living in, in Metz, which was a city in northeast France, first wrote about Pope Joan in, in his Universal Chronicle of, of Metz. This was the mid-13th century. And then only a little bit later, Martin of Opava, who was also a Dominican cleric, wrote about in his papal history. And the name that he had given, because obviously she would not have ruled as Pope Joan, um, the name he gives is John Anglicus. So he says, John Anglicus, born at Menz, which is a city in Germany, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman, who as a girl had been led to Athens, dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. There she became proficient in a diversity of branches and knowledge of knowledge, until she had no equal and afterward in Rome, she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for pope. While pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in procession from St. Peter's Basilica to the Lateran, in a lane oh, once named Via Sacra, the sacred way, but which is now known as the Shunned Street, between the Colosseum and the Basilica of San Clemente. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Pause one sec. By all means. She, she gave birth in the middle of the street during a procession? So, right. Yeah. Your your reaction is is uh, one that I think many would probably share, which is whatever level uh, of truth this story exists upon, it is probably not the literal. Somebody probably <laughs> would have mentioned this at the time if the Pope mm. had given birth in the middle of... Uh, of Rome uh, during a papal procession. Sure. I feel like it would have come up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so certainly you can see where as the story operates at a more like instructive level, because there's that, that real sort of like hostility, I think, um, in that section about 
you know, the, the church had kind of complicated relationships to what we can broadly call female cross-dressing throughout the Middle Ages. Sometimes it was seen as incredibly spiritual and in fact indicative of, of near saintliness. Uh, and at other times, particularly the longer the Middle Ages went on, um, it was viewed with more suspicion and, and as possibly being sexually deviant. Um, and so there's this idea that um, she would have been led into cross-dressing by a male lover. It would have been a sexual deviancy introduced by a man. That would have led to a love of learning, which even if she might have been good at it, was similarly damaging to her character, to her soul, and which would lead to a sort of spectacle that reveals her inability to be Pope, her inability to know or control her own body, um, and mm -hmm. her inability to save herself from public shame and humiliation. So it's really like childbirth as degradation and punishment, which is really ugly. Um, I, I think it has always been the sort of most like flashy, ugly, I, I, peacock element of the story. Do you know what I mean? Where like ugliness yeah. and misogyny can kind of take on like pageantry and beauty in this really like upsetting peacocky kind of way. It is. And and feels too like a story kind of authored by people who haven't given birth because uh, it's not an experience I've had. But I think even stories about sudden, about like pregnancy that you're not aware of and then suddenly you're giving birth, the suddenly is like a couple of hours. It's not it's not like going from a parade and you have a stomach ache to like uh, there's a baby suddenly on the street. It feels like some amount of hand waving, whether that's an ignorance of how it actually feels or like to your point, Daniel, like a, a natural and deserved consequence from, you know, trying to get away from from some essential truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if if anything, and this is just like my own pure speculation, but I, I think if there's any sort of like parallels to be found in that particular episode with like church history, um, it, it has to do with the deaths of Judas and the deaths of Herod. And you may be familiar with the death of Judas in the Gospels where uh, he sort of complicatedly in some versions hangs himself, in some versions spills his guts out over a potter's field, and in some versions it's both. And then the, the death of, of Herod in the book of Acts is, is similarly like gut-based and involves being on the throne um, and being sort of overtaken by – sometimes it's, it's described as a disease, sometimes as worms, sometimes similarly his gut bursts open and spills. So this is a sort of like gender-swapped version of those two very like ugly deaths that carry with them the pronouncement of dis divine disfavor um, mm -hmm. and that again involve like innards spilling out in public uh, and especially in the Herod story on like this site of like the literal throne of borrowed uh, inauthentic power. So, I, yeah. you know, this is just me guessing, but I, I think this part of the story was probably influenced by the death of Herod uh, specifically. Yeah, seems right yeah. to me. Great. I love I love that when someone's just like, I agree. <laughs> yeah. You sound like you know what you're talking about. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I can see the parallels. And also like made worse and with the distinct mwah, flavor of misogyny there because one would assume that like, the birth of a child or giving like bringing a child into the world should be a positive good thing but instead is turned into this abhorrent behavior and then punishment for pope joan you know what i mean yeah why are we not saying pope joan not just a pope but like mary you know like there there is a lens to view these things that that the story is choosing not to
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think especially for any sort of like Christian listener at the time, there was this real understanding of like blasphemy as a reversal. So like the idea mm-hmm. that the sort of like devil's hour or witching hour was uh, the inverse of of the hour at which uh, Christ died on the cross, satanic. And this is a little bit later, obviously, when you get into the sort of like early modern era uh, uh, witch panics. But, you you know, you had the Malleus Maleficarum in the, in the 15th century. So I think we can say this is roughly the same time. Uh, you know, witch's mass, where the sort of infernal kiss um, was was when the the witch in question had to kiss the devil on the anus, um, and this was the sort of reversed kiss of Christ, kiss of peace. So Herod dies for like blasphemous self exaltation over mm-hmm. the the power of God, um, and as such dies on the seat of his power. And so Pope Joan, um, in sort of like defying uh, you know rules about sex and and the clergy. Um, would be brought low by childbirth um, mm-hmm. in a sort of just like one for one, you know, midnight versus noon, up versus down, medieval understanding of like um, uh, divine punishments that fit the crime. Uh, contrapasso, oh, yeah. it's called in in the in the um, Divine Comedy when when Dante goes down into hell. Everyone is suffering the sort of like logical and exact opposite of their sins in hell. Hundred percent. We're adding so much to this story. I know. I love it. The bit about that street at the end, this is where we get into the sort of like echoes of the Pope Jones story that you could either argue it was like created to fill retroactively or simply borrowed in order to embroider the story. So the shunned street supposedly is a place, you know, I'm not supposedly like this. This is a street, um, the, the the Via Sacra. But like there was supposedly a tradition where popes would like look away from that street when they had to walk past mm. it or they would avert their eyes. And the sort of justification um, that was given for that was, well, that's where Pope Joan, you know, had her humiliating uh, childbirth and, and and was later died. So of course, she later died after giving birth because well, and was, was killed, um, yeah. you know, by, by an angry mob, um, which angry mobs love to do. Oh, I, I assumed that it was through childbirth, which I was like, of course, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- th- this mostly comes around from a particular story uh, written down by John Burchard, the Bishop of Strasbourg, who wrote about uh, a procession for for Innocent VIII, which broke with the tradition where they just went down the street. And so Burchard kind of noted, like, I guess they're not doing that anymore. I guess it's hmm. not a big deal. There's not much beyond that that I'm aware of. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, we have written records for all the decades of the early, middle, and late Middle Ages, and everybody was avoiding that street. So we don't know a lot about what that custom might have been, or even if it was a custom, just there's a, a written record of somebody having broken it. What a delightful piece of like errata for someone to be like, mm, I guess they're not doing that anymore. Like there is, it, there's a real, I know it's like a useful historical observation, but my my brain wants to characterize it as like a gossipy little aside of like, mm, times have changed. Yes, they're not avoiding the street anymore. It's kind of up there with Pope Donus II, right? Where it's just yeah, like, yeah. is this a clerical error or what? Like, is there a story exactly. here or isn't there? No, it's amazing. Yeah. And then the sort of like biggest element of this uh, would, would have been the statue in Silena, where, the, where at the cathedral, there were statues of all the popes. And and for several centuries um, in the late Middle Ages, there was apparently a, a statue with a, a woman's face in papal vestments. It was apparently destroyed due to another violent mob at some point in the probably 16th century, latter half of it. At some point, Martin Luther visited Rome and he remarked on it and remarked on it specifically. I'm surprised the popes let this still stand here because this is embarrassing Mm -hmm. to them. Damn. That's a classic Martin Luther line. Damn, Martin Luther. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the the one that he described um, was of a woman wearing a papal cloak and holding a child. So this statue, at least, Whoa. there's a, a living child that she's holding, which slightly seems to deviate from the story itself, but could simply be representative. We don't know. And again, it, it's also possible that it was just removed during renovation work because around that time they were renovating the cathedral a lot. It's not definitive. So I, I'm sorry, too, because I start with like such a cool specific story. And then it's like, <laughs> well, maybe there was a street some popes avoided, but maybe not. <laughs> And, you know, a, a couple of people mentioned a statue that might have just been like a lady in a cloak or that could have been specifically, you know, here she is, the woman pope. Those are notable people saying that, like Martin Luther saying, oh, there's a statue of this lady pope with a baby. That's a big deal. That That's someone who I would not look at and be like, that's an unreliable narrator there. You know what I mean? It is. It is. Although there is some dispute whether or not uh, it could have been, you know, for example, a statue of Juno suckling Heracles. Sure. So there, there's there's a, a, other potential explanations for why there might have been such a figure, potentially just like near some papal statues. There's a lot of different ways that that could have come to pass. Mm -hmm. So there's another source, a Jesuit cardinal named Robert Bellarmine, also from the you know, uh, 1500s, 1600s. And he refers to uh, a Pope Joan statue. He says the statue wasn't of a woman at all. It was of a man holding a large child several years old, uh, who was preceding him like a servant. So, uh, you know, maybe a claim of just like, you should have checked your eyes that day. Uh, <laughs> you mistook this statue of a, a guy with a five-year-old for a woman with a baby. So again, this one kind of peters out, but it's it's not as like cut and dry as there was this incredibly famous statue of Pope Joan that people flocked to for centuries before the church hid it out of embarrassment. Yeah. And then, of course, the sort of last thing was there's a couple of papal chairs that are incredibly old and that have kind of holes in the middle. And a lot of stories cropped up around them, including ideas that the Pope would have to sit in it so that somebody could reach up through the chair and like feel his testicles and then announce, good news, he has testicles. As if after Pope Joan gave birth in the street, they were just like, from now on, we're checking all we the got popes. got to check. Yeah. Which is one of those things that like, you could really see how someone was just trying to explain why is there a hole in this chair and coming up mm -hmm. with the goofiest reason they could think of. Because it's like, if you were really that worried about women in disguise trying to become the Pope, you would wait until she was crowned Pope to double check. You wouldn't be doing this Certainly at the not. priestly level. Right. Before somebody was sitting on a throne, you would wait until the most cinematic possible moment and then have <laughs> some guy come out and be like, oh, good news. There's testicles. Like, it doesn't pass the sort of like plausibility test, but mm. um, it's certainly fun. It is fun. And the tenor and like social purpose of conspiracy theories has changed a lot during my lifetime, such that this is the kind of speculation that I now find safe and fun to do uh, is like, hey, why do we, you know, it, it makes me feel really close to the past to think of people looking at, you know, a chair with a, a hole in it, you know, that you can't really explain. And the like weird, weird little freaks, you know, like like the ideas that we would have, you know, as, as a weird little freak myself and, you know, the ideas and the possibility like that all makes me feel very kind of close to the past and those people as really vibrant and real to me um, as we think about why, you know, these stories stand out to us um, and why this uh, the specter, this haunting, this hope, this story is something that fascinated people so long that it still exists now, you know, many, many centuries later. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the, the one sort of area in which most people might have encountered um, some version of the, the Pope Joan legend, even if they're not aware of it, would be if, if you've ever used tarot cards. 
the the high priestess is is one of the um, figures in the major arcana, and in a number of earlier tarots, it's crowned with a papal tiara, and it's labeled La Pepessa, the Popess. Um, ah. Again, it's not it's not like Pope Joan. Um, it's not her name, but the the implication uh, is is certainly a rich one, and so that's also where a lot of that story started to spread. And of course, you know, tarot cards uh, in the you know late medieval and early modern era were used for all card games, not just for divination. So there's not necessarily mm-hmm. an immediate connection with sort of like divination or augury or witchcraft in there, um, or even of ceremonial magic. But if you want to kind of make those few jumps, you sure can, and it's a lot of fun. And I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> Agreed. Listen, we're not publishing books about this. We can make those jumps if we want to make those jumps. So, you know, you can kind of see in retrospect ways in which that is a story that sort of implicates anxieties about women's involvement in the church, potentially Mm -hmm. just like it might have been understood as not something that had literally happened. But, you know, let's look back at this era of the papacy, which we all believe to have been too influenced by women and sexuality, and carry it out to this sort of grotesque logical conclusion of the Pope giving birth. Now, doesn't that make you long for the genteel days of chaste priests running things? And so there's ways in which it can be understood as like a, a longing for the norm. And then, of course, there's other ways in which you can easily see how, you know, throw it on a tarot deck. What a cool idea. Absolutely Pope giving birth. Fantastic. Give me more. So it, it's it's very like useful kind of whichever side you're coming from. But I think it it has lots to do just with medieval reexaminations of an earlier, more complicated um, state of the papacy when it was not nearly as settled looking as it was later come to, to appear. Yeah. And I think like many myths and folklore, it was probably created the story for a certain purpose, but it can always be repurposed or told in a different light or told for a different angle. And what you get out of those stories is what is useful to you, not necessarily what it was originally intended for. Yeah. And I think it also has a lot to do with, um, you know, like clerical reexamination of mm-hmm. transition, cross-dressing. Um, anytime you get a sort of Wild West era, you get a lot of trans people popping up. Um, <laughs> lots of cross-dressing, lots of people living as the other sex for years and years. Yeah. Like uh, the laws are all over the place. The people, they're doing whatever. And it's, yeah. it's for me a, a really lovely reminder of, you know, gender and sexuality, diversity, like throughout time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, the early Christian monastic period especially was uh, there were lots and lots of stories about and, you know, again, I want to like kind of depending on the story, sometimes it would be totally instrumental. Sometimes it would be incredibly like meaningful to the individual in question to be living um, as a man. So there's there's different ways in which like I would probably switch language about different stories there. But I think it's also a real reexamination of, you know, is cross-dressing a a way of getting closer to God and something that we should be celebrating? Or is it a freaky, sexy thing and something we should be getting rid of? So, you know, like the early saints, some probably like fictional and syncretized, some we have more evidence for, for their having actually lived. But like in that early monastic period, again, we have Theodora of Alexandria, Apollinaris Syncletica, who um, involved like women who who wanted to, to retire not only from marriage, but the world entirely to become ascetics. There was the legend of Marinos the monk, which is a really great one. It was this young person who who decided to forswear being a girl and to live as a, as a man and a monk. And in fact, was so dedicated to it uh, that after several years of living at a monastery, was accused of having impregnated a young woman. And rather than say, that's not possible, said, 
yes, the child is mine, was cast out of the monastery, raised the child in the desert for years and years. Um, and only after his death did anyone uh, come to understand, you know, his transness, I guess, in this context. Yeah. And then was sort of celebrated as like, wow, this guy really loved God uh, and really <laughs> wanted to be a monk more than anybody else and was even willing to be considered sinful by the so-called righteous. You know, that was that was a monk. Um, and so Damn. these were often incredibly popular stories. You know, there's there's Wilgefortis, um, who who is a fictional Galician saint who uh, whose father was forcing her into into marriage with a non Christian. So she prayed to be made so repulsive that he wouldn't want to marry her, and grew a beard overnight, and then was crucified. And there's kind of amazing iconography of Wilgefortis, both bearded and in a, a wedding gown on on a cross, um, wow. which is sort of remarkable and and. Um, fascinating to look at. But so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that around the the ninth, 10th century, um, from the vantage point of the later Middle Ages, people would be kind of looking back and trying to renegotiate with the church's early relationship um, with cross-dressing, um, with womanhood, with marriage, with childbirth. And that's the story of Pope Joan. Wow. Incredible. You very eloquently expounded on what we normally summarize as Haha, it's not pagan, it's fine, uh, which is the <laughs> syncretizing mission in, in so many words of so many early Christian myths um, or, or mid-Christian um, sort of retellings of earlier Christian uh, holidays and figures. Also, now I want you to tell me all about these different saints and stuff like that. So we might have to have you come back and tell us all about these. That would be delightful. I would nice. love that. What a pleasure. Danny, thank you so much for bringing these stories to us. And for the many, many folks who will be fascinated by your perspective and want to follow your work online, where can they do so? They can find me at thechatner.com, which is uh, the, the source of my newsletter. Um, and I'm also on Twitter as Daniel underscore M underscore Lavery. And um, I wrote some books and I'm trying to remember the names of them all now. <laughs> uh, my most recent book was Something That May Shock and Discredit You. And you can find it uh, in bookstores or online. And you can find links to all those things in the show notes of our episode. Also, I wanted to tell you guys specifically, I was recently listening to your Erdstall episode. And I was really excited because this last spring I got to go inside of a Fugo. <gasps> That's so cool. What was the experience like? Real quick. They are, yeah. uh, you know, Stone Age uh, tunnels that we don't know why anyone made them. Um, and it was part of Karn Uni, which is this amazing Neolithic settlement in, in Cornwall. And it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And Whoa. I had to drive like, remember in Jurassic Park when Newman is driving like in the rain and through all the crazy <laughs> stuff? It was like that. Yeah. The drive was like that. I thought I was going to die a hundred times. Incredible. But when I arrived there, it was just gorgeous and and the landscape was unbelievably beautiful and then just just enough remnants of like old foundations and and hedges uh and and, and like home walls to feel like oh my god this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and then you could actually walk inside the fugo um or That's the suit so terrain cool. i think they're called um in that part of the world and i just lost my mind i took like 50 pictures i'll send them to you guys <laughs> if you want please i would love to see them yeah being in it, did you get a vibe or a headcanon about what you think the purpose was? Or you're just like, this is a mystery and I'm dwelling in it. It does feel like a huge mystery. I can't imagine it would be very useful for like hiding from bad weather because it would mm -hmm. flood. And right. similarly, the idea of like you go there to hide from enemies feels like, well, they'd sure know where you were and they would just have to wait you out. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. It, it feels like it's got to be storage, although then it's weird that they didn't leave anything behind. But yeah. yes, I think storage or like temporary religious rituals make the most sense. Like 
totally. a pantry that you sometimes also worship, I guess. Yeah. I just got a new uh, little rolling cart for my pantry and I love him <laughs> and he is like a saint to me. So I highly identify with the either extremely clean pantry users or combination housekeeping, ritual observing, you know, homemakers of your. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe the real spiritual ones go in there and then the, the real like gallant to their goofus comes in afterwards and it's like, you got to clean this place up. This looks terrible. <laughs> so upset. Incredible. Amazing. Well, thank you both. This was really fun. Thank you. We were we loved having you and hopefully we'll have you back soon to talk about some cool saints. Cool. Incredible. Yeah. And remember, listeners, when you are uh, pretending to be a pope and give birth in the street, uh, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.